Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I am joined for a new entry in our Founders series by Michael Cochin to speak about the creation of empire in America. The book is called An Independent Empire. Diplomacy and War in the Making of the United States. First of all, Michael, thank you very much for joining me. And since it's your first podcast with us, please tell us about yourself, about your work in academia, and especially about your history work. Uh, Thank you, Titus. I teach politics and literature and philosophy in the political science department at Tel Aviv University. I've been in Israel for 25 years. This book that just came out, I wrote with an Irishman educated at Cambridge, Michael Taylor. I got interested in this, the rise of American empire, because I was teaching foundings in general comparatively, and I decided I had to get my head straight on the most important case of founding in the modern world, and then I could talk about other cases like Israel and Rwanda. And so that, with the help of Taylor, it's taken me about 15 years (laughs) to publish this book. But uh, there we have it. And uh, this is my third book. It's Taylor's first. He has a book coming out soon in England called The Interest, How the British Establishment Resisted the Abolition of Slavery. It's the first serious treatment of the arguments against abolition made by the slave interest that many important figures in British intellectual life, like Southey and Carlyle, found very persuasive. Though, of course, in the end, I suppose, fortunately, the abolitionists won the argument. I myself studied the abolition struggle in Britain in the 19th century, so I'm very interested in this. Thank you for bringing it up. I did not know this. I'm glad you're teaching this as well. Perhaps it's the best way to have long-taught foundings to end up writing a book that is a wonderful read. So tell us about the book, about the intention behind it, and about its structure. Because this is primarily a political history. It deals with the construction of the American state, the federal government. How it dealt with the task of defending the country, both from internal dissension and struggles against the Indian confederacies and tribes, and, of course, against the European powers that were active in America through the 1820s. So how do you figure on empire? So Americans come to realize they're living in a British empire. And the British, after the Seven Years' War, when they defeat the French and the French Indian allies, decide that they need to put this empire on a sound fiscal and political basis. The particular schemes that the British go along with, the Americans resist. And in the end, of course, they're successful at frustrating the British in uh, modernizing the British Empire in North America, at least those parts of it that we call the 13 colonies. But that doesn't mean that the problems go away. The Indians are still there. They're still getting help from Europeans. Trade relations with the big world, which used to be managed by the parliament in London, now have to be managed by Congress. And uh, it turns out they need constitutional reform to handle the trade problems, to pay for the war capacity, to pay the debts. And they have constitutional reform. They inaugurate a new government, April 1789. And then in July, the French government collapses. And that pushes all of Europe and eventually the whole world into a series of political and military crises that the Americans, now independent, have to navigate on their own. And, of course, their success in building their own empire in North America and in navigating a world of hostile empires is the greatest success of the modern world. That, I think, was my main impulse in wanting to study it. Um, You know, as an academic, it's a great mystery to me how anybody ever does anything. And so I thought I would study the most successful example of political achievement in the modern world to try to figure out how things actually happen, how stuff gets done, how people build institutions and practices and learn new habits that enable them to actually, you know, function and deal with these problems, which the Americans didn't invent, but they refused to allow the British to deal with them for them. 
yeah, it's very useful to start from this matter that the American Revolution grew out of the British Empire and therefore out of an imperial cast of mind, which is most obvious, of course, in trying to defend the rights of Americans to expand indefinitely on the American continent. At a time when it was not explored adequately, there were not good maps, and there was no real understanding of how this would take place over 100 years or so. It was, however, as a matter of principle, believed by everyone that it should happen. Therefore, imperialism was an object of American politics from before there was American politics. And in parallel with that, I'm glad you draw attention to this fact that all the problems of the early republic were the problems that the British had dealt with before, from the Indians and the French to commerce and, of course, protection on the high seas, not just from the British or the French or other imperial powers, but from, of course, the city-states that led to the Barbary Wars in the Jefferson administration. Independence did not make these problems go away, as you say. It only meant that now Americans would have to deal with them for themselves, and therefore that Americans had to learn as a political class, but also as a nation, given the newspapers and voting and representative government. Everybody had to learn how to deal at some level with the problems of being a free state, equal to any other state in the world, if at least Americans prove able to protect themselves and impose the terms of that equality against constant harassment from powers great and small. Right. So that's one way to think about it, is an equal station. And you can find that language. We think more useful is to look at the American quest for other predominance in North America. The Americans are quite aware of balance of power thinking, but mostly they want to carve out a world for themselves in North America to which the balance of power in the rest of the world is simply irrelevant. And if you look at how the Americans choose sides in the wars of the French Revolution, they have this tendency to actually wind up siding with the stronger power, or at least try. When they launch the War of 1812 against Britain, they are aware, of course, that Britain has overwhelming predominance on the seas. But they, in fact, believe that the British coalition is about to lose. And Madison says much later in a bit of self-exculpation that when Napoleon invaded Russia, we all thought he was going to win, which meant, of course, the Americans were siding with the stronger side, which is exactly the opposite of conventional balance of power thinking. But that's, you know, the kind of thinking that the Americans are looking for, because what they want in North America is imperial predominance. As Hamilton says in the Federalist Papers, we aim to be the arbiter of affairs on these continents in North and South America. Nobody's going to be able to balance against the United States. That was the goal early on. It's not just in the Federalist Papers. A version of this we point out is in Paine's Common Sense already in January 1776, before independence. So one has to think not just in terms of equality, because they're not really interested in equality. They're interested in ruling simply in North America in a way that they can't be threatened by other imperial projects or other political projects outside of the Americas. Yeah, that's a very good point, And thank you for that correction. Equality is a defensive position in American politics. It is a diplomatic requirement so that the commerce and the very lives and freedoms sailed under the American flag will be protected from constant harassment by the French and the English, navies, corsairs, and privateers. But the offensive principle of American politics is not equality, it is indeed empire dominance of the continent. This is an enormous ambition to comprehend, but in a way, it's everything everybody assumes today. There is a strange continuity between the initial ambitions of America and present reality. And that indeed is best described as empire, since it means a power to rule over land and people. Now, let's talk about how this was established in the first place. 
the revolution guarantees to America through its success a federal government, but that government turns out to be too incompetent to administer that freedom or even safeguard. And that is what leads to the necessity for constitutional reform. Freedom, instead of letting things go as they had before, more or less, leads people to the conclusion that the way things had gone before is simply impossible to continue. It will not be possible for America to be 13 different colonies that have a very weak executive of a collective character, which cannot do anything to impose its will on the colonies, much less protect them. Right. So, I mean, it's important not to exaggerate weakness, right? Washington ran the war with basically dictatorial powers as head of the army. Patrick Henry makes that argument actually in opposing the constitutional reform. He's not the only such voice, but he's a fairly unique voice in saying that the government they had was adequate for the imperial purposes they had in mind. Uh, You can find other sort of minor voices that rejected the imperial purpose, but that's also pretty rare. Almost everyone agrees on the imperial purpose, but there's an argument about which constitutional reforms are necessary. You know, they faced the hostile Indians backed by the British and the Spanish. They had not successfully established formal trade relations with the British. All their trade with Britain and its empire was based on grace rather than anchored in commercial agreements. They had big hopes for opening up trade with France, but it turned out that Americans actually wanted British goods and not French goods. And the French economy wasn't so efficiently run anyway from the point of view of accepting American imports. So um, that hadn't worked either. They had some commercial agreements with minor powers, but they really needed something with the British, and the British couldn't see any reason to sign commercial agreements with them. The British were still in the Western posts in the Northwest and didn't see any reason to pull out if the Americans weren't capable of intimidating them. The government, under the Articles of Confederation, couldn't actually do those things. Everybody, pretty much, except Patrick Henry, agreed that the problems weren't going to be solved under the Articles. Amendments were proposed to the Articles that would give the Congress the power to levy taxes, at least on trade and pose its will in commercial issues. And if they could do all that, then that basically was the position of almost all the actual anti-federalists, especially in New York, which was the strongest of the states under the Confederation. Uh, And in an effort to lobby against the constitutional reforms proposed in Philadelphia, it actually overpaid its requisitions. Say, everything's just fine, we'll pay up, you know, just keep things as they are with these reforms within the structure. Instead, the federalists opted to create a whole new structure They threatened to leave out and in the end did wind up leaving out the states that didn't go along at first. Rhode Island elected representatives to the Continental Congress in June of 1789 after Washington was inaugurated in April and were quite astonished to discover that if they didn't join the new constitution, the United States was now going to treat Rhode Island as a foreign state subject to the same trade barriers that other foreign states were going to be subject to in the absence of commercial agreements. When this actually happened, that convinced the Rhode Islanders that it was time to sign on. So, you know, they actually did set out to destroy the previous federal structure in order to build a new one. And they did, in fact, destroy it, leaving those communities out who didn't sign on at the beginning. Though in the end, of course, everybody they wanted in eventually agreed to come in. Yeah, I think you're right. that There's a very big distinction between the power to effect purposes and the authority under which those purposes are set. As a matter of authority, the Continental Congress and George Washington ran the war, as you said, dictatorially. There was no other possibility during the war. It was excused, we would say, by necessity, but it could not be justified or legitimated. To do that, you would have to come up with a new federal structure, with a new understanding of government, and that indeed involved, as you point out, bullying the most independent of the states, like Rhode Island, long an exception to American mores. That shows just how difficult it was to change the arrangements even when there was broad agreement on the character of American empire, which would be commercial. 
Americans were not particularly interested in conquest, and certainly they were not interested in the requirements of conquest. Honors and advantages for a military to educate the nation, to provide soldiers and sailors, to create new captains and commanders who would glory. Instead, the army and the navy are constantly neglected as soon as the war is over, and the more the American political class, consisting mainly in lawyers, complains of the fact that their rights are not respected by England and France, the more they complain that other powers do not see commercial interest as the governing principle of international politics, the more we see the defectiveness of American arms and the unwillingness of Americans to create those arms. It is catastrophe after catastrophe that forces Americans into patriotism, into a bellicose form of patriotism. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I, I would quite put things that way. For one thing, the Americans, before the crisis with Britain, the British Navy was substantially American manned and American constructed, partly because that's where the trees were, partly because that's where the skills were. And part of the story we tell is that in the age of sail, the Americans continue to maintain a qualitative edge, which is, of course, very different from a quantitative edge. And God is on the side of the big ships and the big battalions. I mean, everything is controversial. Jefferson has a different vision, but in the end, he is, in fact, forced to give in and continue the modern navy that was built under Adams. And with regard to the army, of course, you're right, and it's important that Americans don't cultivate a class of military glory seekers. But what they thought they were doing, and perhaps this should have been in the book more emphasized than we did, they cultivate explicitly on the Roman model military colonists. They recruit landless men into their armies, heavily immigrants. These men fight in return for a promise of land. This promise is paid off in land and public order. The whole war in, against the Indians in Ohio is a war carried out in part to protect the military colonies that the U.S. is already trying to create after the Revolutionary War. They've given people these patents. These veterans have gone out. It takes a stronger federal army. And you're right, of course, that it takes two failures and then success to beat the Indians. I think the failures are simply a failure of leadership and strategy on the part of the field commanders more than an unwillingness to do what's necessary. In fact, they're perfectly willing to do what's necessary. It just takes Washington two failed tries to find a commander capable of executing his will and the will that he and other leaders share and have educated the public to share to subjugate uh, the Ohio country. Yeah, I especially appreciated your discussion in the book of the United States Legion. How Roman is that? And right. the war in the Ohio against the Western Confederacy of Indians, and that is indeed the way of Western expansion so far as safety is concerned, and therefore the importance of the federal government in the Northwestern Territory. Indeed, it takes Americans a while to find their footing because they are not a military nation. They do not have the martial habits. There's simply not enough connection between the federal government and the troops, between the commanders and their troops on the ground. I mean, desertion is a massive problem, as you lay out, up until people get the taste of success. Americans tend to become stronger with success rather than adversity. The taste of success always leads people to renewed efforts, to a renewed confidence that they can win these battles. And this will be true of fights against the English as well, of course, including on the high seas. So, as you say, already Tom Paine says what Americans soon begin to recognize in a political way. America has absolutely all the resources, both in terms of material and in terms of skills, for the construction of a world-class navy. But paying for it would be a very different matter, and setting it as a purpose would be a still different matter. It is difficult for the federal government to fund itself. 
it is difficult to get the vision of a commercial empire protected by a navy that would have to contest all sorts of crimes against America on the high seas by powers who dedicate so much of their government to navies simply because they are in the habit of fighting wars. Americans are not. Yeah, I mean, some of that is that. Some of it is that, you know, trading with the enemy pays and fighting him doesn't. The very same merchants who, in theory, want protection in practice also want to trade with the British, that you need protection from. And so, <laughs> exactly. uh, you know, it, it's kind of funny that the people advocating for the harshest response to the British are these Virginians who uh, have actually no investment in the American carrying trade. It's one of the, the many delightful paradoxes of this period. So Hamilton, fighting the British, he knows he's going to cut into trade and therefore into the customs revenue. And that's going to hurt the same empire building project that he's otherwise in favor of, where, you know, all these people can agree is on the continental aspects of it. That's something that was very important to us to emphasize, is that's the big theme. All these other issues are minor. That's the issue on which everybody's pretty much in agreement about the goals. And the political arguments mainly have to do with success and failure and who's responsible for it. We're not the first to say this. I think it goes back to Felix Gilbert. But Payne lays out a vision and then everybody pretty much agrees with it, apart from a few unpleasant dissenters and Quakers in the East. You know, all these other issues that people fight about, they can fight about, as we show in the discussion of the ratification of the Jay Treaty, they can fight about only as long as they sort of aren't thinking about what it's going to take to secure American predominance in American empire in North America. When they think about that, then all these other issues assume what Americans generally see as their proper insignificance uh, in the face of these imperial challenges on land. I think you're right. And uh, nevertheless, these conflicts do reveal the internal contradictions of the new republic. As you pointed out, the most bellicose are principled lawyers from Virginia, like James Madison and Thomas Jefferson, who never put a hand to a weapon in their lives, and also didn't have much interest in commerce. Hamilton, who was a real honest-to-God soldier, and an economist to boot, is far less willing to encourage this military fantasy, because it meant the crippling of American trade. As you point out in your book, American government, although as a principle it is dedicated to empire in America, as a structure, it is financed by trade with Britain. Since the only way you can tax Americans is, well, you know, tax the imports. Right. As you, you quote uh, Lyndon Johnson saying, it turns out Americans who fought a war over taxation without representation did not like taxation with representation much better. <laughs> so right. maybe the Americans just have a problem with paying taxes as such. <laughs> I mean, under the British, they were the least taxed people in the world, as far as we know. And even the British reforms did not change that very much in a quantitative sense. Americans got used to living well and eating their fill, right? America is the only country at the time, and to some extent, I think this is still true today, where every man or woman, regardless of their means, can eat as much as they want. Uh, (laughs) You know, we tend to look at the downside of that, but that's because most of us are not as close to the edge as people were in 1776. And so we don't see the threat that, you know, a government that can impose taxes without our consent, even if these taxes at first look very small, they're going to threaten this thing that we, we like very much, which is that anybody who works will be able to eat until they're not hungry anymore. Yeah, a, like this uh, had never happened before. And America only knew hunger in one moment, really. And that was the Great Depression, briefly. 
Otherwise, it has been, it is the one nation that has never known this sort of starvation, which is an enormous advantage. And it is to Americans' credits that they were willing to fight over this stuff to make the matter of principle, because it's an example. Nevertheless, it created a problem for funding a government that could defend the people who held these principles given their practices. That turned out to be very difficult, and it eventually did lead Americans to war against Britain. And that, again, lays out this fascinating contradiction within American politics. The merchants of America tended to be concentrated from New York northward, but especially in New England. And those were also the people who were most interested in continuing good relations with Britain, and who were crippled economically by the war with Britain in 1812, but also crippled politically as Federalists because their allegiance to their nation was no longer plausible to themselves. The Federalists created a government that is strong enough to defend the nation, both internally for expansion purposes and externally against enemies who might intervene in the American continent or in American commerce, but were all capable of understanding the nation, which it safeguarded, and they committed to self-destruction by creating a unity against themselves of the West, where everybody was for expansion, say people like Henry Clay, and the South, where the Virginia lawyers that ran the country from 1800 to 1824 were fully invested in defending American sovereignty and not tolerating any secession. Right. So first, this is something I wanted to stick in early about the Virginia lawyers. The one thing I really wanted to do in the book and in my work more generally on this stuff, which I think was less than fully accomplished. So the professors who write American history focus on Jefferson and Madison because, of course, Jefferson is a better intellectual than any of them. And Madison was basically a professor. And the man who's ignored is the one who repeatedly demonstrated greater executive and political capacity than any of them is James Monroe. Randolph, who in many respects was an insane visionary, he knew right away that it was utterly absurd to make James Madison president of the United States. And he tried to organize a movement for Monroe in 1808. Eventually, of course, Madison's administration, Madison himself, wound up delegating pretty much everything of importance to Monroe, who was simultaneously Secretary of War, acting Secretary of State, and offered the command at the Northern Front by Madison in order to finally conquer Canada. So they weren't all lawyers. Some of them actually had substantial military experience. Monroe did as a very junior officer for Washington. Monroe, unlike Jefferson, was an actually competent governor of Virginia. And uh, Monroe had substantial diplomatic experience, which was rather mixed. But it's also interesting, he was also not especially bellicose, right? He negotiated an agreement with the British to regularize trade during the Napoleonic Wars that completely put aside the issue of impressment. And Jefferson repudiated right away. So, you know, I think the story you tell is very familiar to us because we identify easily with those people and not so much with Monroe, who was not much of a writer and may not have, in fact, been much of a thinker, but was, in fact, better at the arts of ruling than any of these men, as people recognized at the time. The Americans, of course, yeah, they wanted an effective government and they weren't thrilled about paying for it. And a part of the story that we do try to tell carefully is that they had to be educated, right? That's what Washington tries to do most notably in the farewell address is saying it's a tough world. It requires an effective government, and an effective government has to be paid for. And I'm going to review the events of my administration and show how on the biggest issues the government has indeed been effective. Securing the West, the Northwest through war, the Southwest through opening up the Mississippi vis-a-vis Spain, securing commercial agreement in the Jay Treaty. You know, you're getting what you're paying for, and you're going to have to pay for it. These are the realities that he's trying to teach them. And that, to me, is, you know, a really fascinating case because it shows you You know, a friend of mine said to me, you can't turn off your mail. There's no way to opt out of getting mail. Mail is like the televisions in 1984. You can't turn it off. 
And what this history taught me is that part of the reason you can't turn it off is that the U.S. mails and everywhere else that has modernized on the American model set up the mails in order to push pro-government propaganda on people. From Washington's point of view, the political purpose of the mails is to enable the government to explain itself and to understand people's grievances. And all the other things that the mail does commercially and so forth are just set up to subsidize the crucial political purpose of the mail system. The present, the corona crisis, should remind us that effectively Republican government is in a certain sense limited government, but in a certain sense, the argument for it depends on it being powerful enough to deal with all challenges which may require that it be very powerful indeed and very mobilizing indeed and may require that it push its propaganda to every corner of a very large empire, which required, you know, the largest and most expensive and most heavily subsidized post office in the world in the 1790s. The Federalists succeeded in setting up and their only complaint was that their opponents wouldn't let them extend it and subsidize it and empower it even further. So that's something we have to think about, right? If you look at the broader sweep of modern history. The totalitarian movements that we rightly detest are basically attempts to accomplish American-style accomplishments without the resources and opportunities that the Americans had on their continent, right? Hitler was a great admirer of Western novels and saw what he was doing to the lesser peoples of the East on the model of what the Americans had done to the Indians. And that's not a very pleasant thought for Americans, but that doesn't <laughs> make it false. So you go back and you look at the American experience in the light of subsequent imperial efforts to imitate it, and it highlights for you certain things that the Americans were able to do, in part because they made the right decisions, and in part because their opportunities and resources were more favorable than those faced by their later imitators. Yeah, success does make a very big difference because it has certain causes. The peoples of Europe had history, and the Indians did not. The difference between civilized and savage obtained, including, of course, on the level of reading, of habits that are enforced through teachings and the advantages that creates for memory, to say nothing, of course, of the advantages that it creates for technology. And that makes a very big difference, but not with respect to the issue of justice. Going around murdering these other people to take their lands is not an issue of justice, but one of necessity. Empire, indeed, is a mix of what we understand politics to be, our way of living together, which is justice. And something else, our dealing with necessity and with the circumstances which we cannot predict. Hence, as you say, in America, the government is as powerful as circumstances require it to be. It's hard to say in advance just what that will mean, not just because Americans aren't a particularly interested nation when it comes to foreign affairs, so they don't see crisis coming. As you said, think about this catastrophe with the disease now or the problem of telling Americans what government they bargained for in the Constitution back then. You need the technology and the people to use it to communicate to the people in a persuasive way what's happening, why it's a good thing, what they can do about it, and manage their complaints and their interests. That requires a lot of communication over vast expanses and large numbers of people. This is an inherent problem in modern politics, which had never obtained before, of course. Either associations were much smaller, or there was not a lot of communication between rulers and ruled. America had vast continental expanse to begin with, multiple millions of inhabitants, and voting, representation, people who wanted their views expressed and who would not tolerate a government that would not make itself persuasive. Even when the government won, it had to explain itself. In having to explain itself, it was bound to the people. It was government indeed of the people, by the people, for the people. That creates many opportunities, but also many problems that the founders had to solve, not as founders, but as politicians. 
Indeed, James Monroe is nothing in the order of founding, but in the order of presidents, was he not better than Jefferson and Madison put together? Yes, he was. <laughs> and in a way, once Monroe becomes president, America's problems begin to go away and everything is established in foreign policy and in government on a sounder footing. And Americans get into the habit of electing presidents for president, not estimable founders who turn out to be incompetent executives. Right. So that's, yeah, no, that's, a, it's an interesting point and a good way to put it. The other side of things, I mean, we have to think about, right, is who are these people? The imperial side is to remind us that the project is in the services of an American people that the project is helping to define, but that it's intended as an exclusive project. That's to say, there are people in North America, most importantly, the Indians, who are not part of the American people. The leadership would like to manage affairs with them with justice. Turns out to be the more or less utopian hope of Washington and Knox that they can bring the Indians in somehow into the people. That doesn't happen, but they realize in the end that that's going to be the only way to do justice to the Indians and preserve Republican government is either to bring the Indians in or to kick them out. The Federalists had a vision of bringing them in, which they didn't get very far with, in part because the Indians didn't really want to be brought in. And the Republicans, of course, in part faced with the failure and in part because their views of the balance between justice and representation were somewhat different, decided that the solution involved putting the Indians out, sending them out of the territory, removal, that's to say, removing them from the territory that was to be the basis of the settler government of the United States, the settler empire of the United States. Uh, you said earlier we should talk about empire. So we talk about empire because the people we're talking about talked about empire. The title of the book, An Independent Empire, is from a speech by George III, proclaiming the Americans out of his protection as being in rebellion. He says it's clear that for some time they've been aiming at an independent empire. And that is an accurate depiction of what the Americans at least came to aim at and what Paine wants them to aim at a few months later in January 76. Now, the discourse of empire in American politics from the 1890s on was focused on overseas empire and commercial empire. And the people we're talking about, as I said, for them, certainly commercial empire and what turns out to be its later concomitant in the 19th century, overseas empire, those are things that they regard as secondary, as instrumental to the primary form of empire, which is imperial domination in America. Uh, Hamilton makes this quite clear, for example, in his conversations with Hammond. If they have to choose between sacrificing the West and sacrificing relations with Britain, he too will choose to sacrifice relations with Britain, regardless of the cost to his fiscal system. So this is an earlier dialogue of empire. And another thing I think we see in some of the federalism issues in this corona crisis is that this old problem of empire, of dominating and holding together the continent, has not gone away completely either. When the governor of California says that California is a nation state, when the states and the federal government are at loggerheads about how to deal with what in some ways is a common problem, in other ways has affected New York and in particular New York City in ways that it hasn't really affected anywhere else, including California, thank God. And it's not so easy for all the people involved to manage the tensions, to manage the interests, to see a common interest at the continental level. You know, part of the point of the book is to remind Americans of the necessities of empire. You know, as you say, after Monroe, the challenges from outside have been managed to the point where they're no longer really threatening. The challenge to the unity of empire in North America is the slave interest, right, which is already bearing its head in the Missouri crisis under Monroe, comes in at the end of the period we cover in the book. But that the challenges are managed doesn't mean they aren't there, right? I like to tell my students, you know, if you look at modern society in general, what makes modern society possible basically is modern plumbing and modern sanitation. 
because otherwise, as we see now in New York, right, cities are just too deadly and urban people don't reproduce themselves. You have a constant new influx of people from the countryside who have a very different upbringing from the urban upbringing. Now, none of us think about that as long as our toilets are working and as long as we're not dying of sewer-borne diseases. But, you know, what is fundamental and what we actually worry about on a day-to-day basis aren't really the same thing. What's fundamental to American history is this drive for continental empire. The fundamental challenge that the federal government, that the union faces, is holding that together in the face of foreign threats and in the face of internal dissension. Whether that's the burning problem or the acute problem or the politically relevant problem at the moment, those things change, but the necessities of continental empire don't change. And sometimes they're closer to the surface and in more blessed periods, they're further away from the surface. Yeah, I think that's right. You always wonder about any political community. What is it that the rulers and the people they rule really have in common? Where is it that they can really agree? And in the case of the American Republic then and now, it is dominating America. Everything else could be a matter of dispute, but not this. But even further disputes about if we agree on this, what means are required, who should suffer more or gain more in different factional or regional conflicts, as indeed now, you know, as you said, America is facing a national epidemic the likes of which hasn't happened in a hundred years. And all of a sudden it turns out that the government is not that competent and all sorts of choices have to be made about where do you send help first or most. All of a sudden, urgency reveals that American power is not infinite and that American interests clash in all sorts of ways. There will be a massive conflict between trying to keep the economy going and trying to keep public health from degenerating. These things cannot be turned either into a harmony, much less into a non-issue. They're always an issue, as you say. Modern government and modern life require massive technological use of all sorts of devices that allow people to stay alive in arrangements where they would die of starvation or what have you without all these new inventions. Well, come a crisis, the price we pay for these things is revealed. It's very hard to keep going. It requires all our interest, all our energy in ways we don't even realize since for most of the time it's obey certain regulations and do your job. Right. And so, when so that, much of our energy and habits into it that we don't see it up until it starts malfunctioning. Right. But that I, is the American problem. Right. You know, America should be of interest to everybody because America is bigger and in that respect has bigger problems. But it's also bigger because it's mostly been more successful at managing these problems of modern life, which to some extent first alight in America or some of the responses to the first alight in America. In any case, whichever responses somebody comes up with somewhere else, like the modern university, the Americans immediately steal and make bigger and therefore more influential than the models, than the countries they're modeling themselves on. And, you know, people realize this, I think, at some level, but from time to time, one has to remind oneself of these big facts, uh, which are big. <laughs> you know, they're just important and large. And therefore, occasionally, like the elephant in the room, you spend a lot of time peering around the elephant and you forget that the fundamental reality is the elephant. And the most important phenomenon in modern history is the rise of the United States. If you study any other aspect of modern history, you have to keep it in mind. How does the rise of the United States matter for everything else that happens everywhere else starting around 1776? Because it turns out that it does matter. There's a little cute fact that I like to tell my students, that you put your finger pretty much anywhere on the globe, and there's a story for which there are documents about why that spot is, or mostly, of course, is not part of the United States. 
So uh, after the Napoleonic Wars, the Danes realize that they can no longer maintain their little bits of commercial empire against the British. And so they try to sell it off. And they offer the Andaman Islands to the Americans, to John Quincy Adams, American minister in London after the War of 1812. So, of course, Adams has no instructions about the Andaman Islands. And so as a professional diplomat, he's very careful to give a non-committal answer. But he writes back to the Secretary of State, to Monroe. He says, look, I, I assume that the instructions are going to be to politely refuse the Andaman Islands. But, you know, any political decision, as I also like to tell my students, they're political decisions because they could go either way. There's a story which I can point to in documents about why the Andaman Islands or why in a later period Armenia were never ruled by the United States. That's part of what it means to see the rise of America as the biggest track in the, in the modern world. Not always the most important, but always the biggest. Yeah, so there is a certain interest that mankind have in America because of the character of American politics and power. And if it is obvious now to the point that we indeed neglect it far more than we should, whenever you have a crisis, like now we will see the epidemic is not just a public health matter, it's not just to create a Great Depression, but of course it will also be a massive political diplomatic problem in a contest between China and the rest of the world where this disease has spread and caused catastrophe. Well, who is at the center of this problem? It won't be China where it started and uh, which allowed it to spread. It will be America. Right. Even in a situation where most of the instruments of globalization from airplanes to the World Health Organization have been turned effectively into weapons of war by China, it will not be China that decides these things for better and for worse. They will be decided in America. And that requires understanding the character of American empire. The interests people will have again in moving around. How will Americans themselves react by the millions to the economic changes? Will this lead to changes in the cities or moving from very crowded cities to other places? Again, the interests of the American people and their relationship, tenuous as it is, but necessary to the government, to the highest elites, will become the central issue. And in all these cases, it's best to recur to the origins where the problems are clearest before their solutions are guaranteed and where it's also easier to see just what the train of mind and the turn of mind is of Americans. How do people think about solving these problems? Which solutions work better and which worse? When do people get the ideas right, but they fail of implementing them, or it just takes a long time to try and fix it? In all these cases, you see, this is what Americans are like. And in certain ways, America has been this way from the beginning. That sounded like a peroration. It was an impressive one. Yeah, the other part of it, which I'll say as a political scientist, one reason I like this period and I turned to study it was that it's easier to understand there just aren't that many people involved. You can see institutions coming up. John Jay is Secretary of State of Foreign Affairs under the Congress. He has two clerks. Uh, One of them can mind the office while the other one goes for lunch. They have a tiny diplomatic apparatus. The traditions, the traditions of the post office go back to the 1790s. The traditions of the State Department go back to John Quincy Adams. The traditions of the War Department go back to the crises of the War of 1812. So you can watch these things being set up by relatively few actors, relatively limited documentation, and one feels one can kind of get a grip on how people through institutions do come to grips with their problems, with success and with failure, in a way that's much harder when you move to the very elaborate and very large modern bureaucracies, modern states, modern party politics with many, uh, many more actors. These things are much harder to follow, to grasp sort of what's central and what's peripheral. 
Yeah, that is a very good point. The founding is this beautiful balance between the importance of men and the importance of institutions, since all the important men became important because they founded institutions and as rulers of those institutions. And it is also, therefore, a beautiful balance between the time before you had documents, since rule was done informally, and the time we're in now, where there's just too many documents and too many of them are top secret. And so you couldn't study things with any comprehensive pretense, even if you had access. Whereas in this moment, or in this period rather, from the pre-revolutionary period to the 1820s, you can see America coming up in such a way that you can look both for the details in the documents and in the persons, and for the great perspective, since they didn't just talk about things, they made things happen as rulers of institutions and of a country. Yeah. So the other side of it that's really important, and this I think is something we talked about earlier, right? America is unique because the public is involved in all of these decisions. It has to be involved, not just paying taxes and providing young men for the army. But it's very quickly understood that nothing is going to get done if the people don't see why it has to be done or why it had to be done in the case of retrospective justification. That really shapes American politics in a way that's really unique. And this was another thing that led me to the study of diplomatic history was a sense that even in tiny countries I've found living in Israel, it's very hard for locals to understand foreigners. Even Israel, which we think of as a country that's sort of caught in these very profound foreign and security challenges, it turns out that Israelis' understanding of what things are like outside of Israel, even where these threats come from, is pretty weak and pretty limited. And that's despite the efforts of their governments to educate them in order to mobilize them, keep them mobilized, get their support and keep their support. And so that's a challenge that any modern state that wants to tap the entire resources of the country to deal with its problems has to face. And it was a challenge that the Americans grasped early on and tried to meet early on with, of course, a mixture of success and failure, right? We can look back. Part of the benefit of hindsight is we see what the key issues were. And then we go back and look at the debates and we discover the extent to which the political actors were blind to the key issues, right? As blind as Nancy Pelosi tearing up Trump's impeachment speech where he mentions the coronavirus threat, right? They don't see what's coming. Of course not. We see, we know the rest of the story. But we go back and we see, you know, there's a process of those who think they do see something trying to get others to see their vision. Sometimes the vision is correct. Sometimes the vision has failed. Sometimes they're successful in getting it shared in terms of changing minds, but more important in terms of mobilizing people and resources. And sometimes they're not so successful. And sometimes the challengers are right. The basic reason why the Americans could never conquer Canada is that the Republicans failed to make the case to the people of the Northeast who would actually have to do the work that it was worth conquering Canada. And perhaps they were right <laughs> that it wasn't worth conquering Canada. You know, that's a modern dilemma, which, of course, in America is a bigger dilemma, you know, because America is bigger and because American government is more open and more responsive. And therefore, America both tries to do bigger things, which means it demands more of its people and its people are more demanding and therefore demand a hearing and get a hearing that they don't necessarily get elsewhere. Right. Even in hindsight, people look back at the whole Brexit debate and you have to be a very smart person to understand that the whole thing was a debate about whether Britain's interests were best served in terms of staying in the EU or leaving the EU, and that the political elite, their consensus on this having dissolved, felt they had no choice but to put this question to a referendum, 
when the question was on the surface of it decided in a referendum, the political elite then decided that they could dither about whether having engaged in this consultation, whether they actually had to accept the results. And, you know, Johnson come in and say, look, you know, it's all too late. We've already decided what we're going to do. And then, you know, I'm just going to do it. We've put that decision to you. Our responsibility is now to do what you want. And you can look back and see that's how the debate went. And I see some of my more intelligent pro-Remain friends who came to see this in the course of the process. But even today, you know, not everybody will agree with what I just said, because these questions are hard and they involve external interests that are not easy to see. And so that forces one as a historian to focus on the problems of how these external interests are perceived, how these issues are decided, and which ways have worked well and which ways have not worked well in trying to understand the world and these challenges and come to grips with them. That's a big part of what led me to this case, the sort of American business school sense that one should learn from best practice. Let's learn from success. In some respects, this is just a Harvard Business School case study, how to run a modern empire, looking at the most (laughs) successful case of it, trying to explain to people how it actually works during the period we cover. I agree, and I'm grateful for the book. Thank you for writing this and for coming up on the podcast to talk about it. I enjoyed reading it. I will be rethinking some things now, and I invite our audience to go and buy this book. Just hop on Amazon and get Michael Cochin's An Independent Empire and (laughs) your co-author, of course. Michael, thanks a lot for joining me, and let's find some other subject and do another podcast soon. This was wonderful. Thank you very much. All the best. All the best.